Gresham College presents Mother Green Tree Frog and Her Children by Professor James Grayson. Welcome to you all to come here this afternoon. Thank you very much. I looked at the title on uh, your handout and uh, it, of course, doesn't have the subtitle, which is folk tale, how folktales contributed to the Confucianization of Korea. So if there's any uh, zoologist here who was thinking this is going to be a lecture on the social life of green tree frogs, please stay anyway, because <laughs> I think you might find this of interest. Um, what we're going to look at this afternoon are folk tales. The, that's what we call the oral, part of the oral literature of any particular society. And folk tales are contrasted with myths and legends. Myths are about um, basically uh, things to do with gods or deities. Legends are sort of quasi-historical stories, which are somehow historically plausible. Folk tales are not. They're full of fantasy. Uh, they're animals talk. You have all sorts of blood-curdling kind of adventures underground. You know, you know what a folk tale is. And that's what we're going to look at. Folk tales are really thought to be, I think generally, as fun. They're sometimes called fairy tales because they're supposed to be for children. Well, they are, but they're also for adults as well. And they have a serious purpose because they are a way in which the values, beliefs, concepts, and ideas of a society or culture can be conveyed or reinforced. So what we're going to look at today is how four <coughs> particular uh, Korean folk tales contributed to the, what I'm calling the Confucianization of Korea. That is, how Confucian ideas, beliefs, and concepts became embedded within uh, Korean society. So that's the sort of general framework. But before we look at these tales, I want to say two things, really three things. Uh, one is about the, the function or role of folk tales. The American anthropologist William Bascom, in a classic article in the early 1950s, uh, wrote a su on the subject of the four functions of folk tales. And these were. Uh, amusement or entertainment, validation of cultural values, education, and enforcement of conformity to cultural norms. And I've often used these, uh, the, the, these ideas in analyzing and looking at uh, folk tales. But about eight years ago, I wrote an article uh, which was published in the Journal of, uh, Asia, of Royal Asiatic Society in which I argue there's a fifth kind of function, which is social criticism. That if you look at some of these tales, they have this function as well. Now these functions are not exclusive. You can have all kinds of combinations with any, any particular tale. But it just does help us to understand what the meaning of these tales is. There is, of course, a kind of surface meaning, which is uh, what we read and we hear and we enjoy. But often in these tales are embedded 
certain kinds of values which are being conveyed in a way uh, which is, quote, fun, uh, it's amusing, palatable, perhaps, and also memorable in a way if you were to give a sort of serious talk about um, these particular issues would not be so memorable. So that's what we can call the five functions of um, folk tales. That is, amusement, validation of cultural values, education, conformity to cultural norms, and social criticism. The second thing I'd like to say is about how we can analyze folk tales. And there are various ways of doing this. One way that I have used is what I call dramatic structural analysis. And that is, a folk tale is a tale, it's a story. So it will have a narrative, it obviously has a narrative. And this narrative can be broken down like a play or a drama into different scenes. And this, the scenes develop and they come to some sort of end or conclusion. And most folk tales, in fact, I think all that, I, that I've seen, uh, really can be looked at in this way. And so it doesn't matter if you're looking at types of folk tales, whether the kind of actors, the type of animals, people, the background, that is the history, the cultural background, the social setting are different. As long as the actual narrative of the story is the same, uh, it's the same tale. It's not quite the same thing, but if you have two stories which are about two uh, love-struck lovers from families or groups of people that are logger at loggerheads with each other and ends up tragically, you set it in Verona in Italy and you have Romeo and Juliet, you set it in the west side of Manhattan and you have West Side Story. But essentially it's the same story. So there are these different kinds of types which you can uh, determine by the structure of the narrative. And so that's the way I've looked at these folk tales and that's something of what we'll be looking at today. Now, I have forgotten, you see, oh, I'm supposed to do this. These are the four functions, amusement, validation, education, conformity, and social criticism. Now, I want to go on and talk about something else. We've talked about the functions that folktales ha have. I've talked about how you can look at the structure of folk tales. We've talked about the tales having certain embedded uh, values or ideas in them. And in this uh, lecture, I'm arguing that if you look at many Korean folk tales, and not exclusively Korean, but any from what I'll call the Confucian world of China, Korea, Japan, and Vietnam, uh, you'll find these kinds of Confucian values embedded, uh, perhaps under the surface somewhere, but they are there. Now, very briefly, what do we mean by Confucianism? Confucianism, uh, and indeed, like all East Asian philosophy, is essentially political philosophy. It's about the politics, it's, about the, it's a philosophy of governance. What makes a good society and a good government? And indeed, Confucius 
uh, was probably the first person who made in East Asia who made his livelihood by teaching what we could call philosophy, which has been remembered and collected in uh, sort of his dialogues, if you will, called the Analects in English or the Lunyong in Chinese. Uh, these were collected by his uh, disciples. And if you look at them, before Confucius actually begins to uh, look at what makes good society, he does an analysis of what society is. And essentially, he argues that society is made up of five key relationships. And that is the relation between the ruler and the ruled, or the governed, the relationship between the parent and the child, the rela relationship between the spouse and the spouse, the uh, relationship between older and younger siblings, and friend and friend. Now, the important thing about these five relationships is uh, they are individual, that is, they're, they're dyadic, they are between two people, they are, uh, have certain values that typify the relationship between uh, the people. That is, there is a, a moral value, type of moral value, between, uh, say, the parent and the child, and the child and the parent. It's hierarchical, because, uh, which has traditionally been seen to be a good thing in East Asia, whereas in the West it's been seen to be a bad thing. Um, but this means there are mutual levels of responsibility, and the people uh, who are older or who have more authority have a certain moral responsibility, and then this is reversed the other way around. There are three uh, key Confucian values which typify this relationship between people. One is called in in Korean or ren in Chinese, benevolence. The other is hyo or xiao in Chinese, which is filial piety. Uh, and the third is chung or jung in Chinese, meaning loyalty. And these are the sort of basic values that typify the relationship between anyone, any, uh, any human being. So, for example, the uh, parent will sh uh, demonstrate benevolence to the child. The child will respond with filial piety, which is really a form of loyalty. So these are the three values. And these are the values that we see embedded in the Korean folktales that we're going to look at in a few minutes. Let me see. But I want to say a few words about uh, Korea, which is perhaps not as well known as it should be uh, in the West compared with China or indeed even Japan. But Korea was an integral part of what we can call the Confucian world since at least the fourth century AD. And uh, certainly by the sixth century, had a, the kingdoms had an established Confucian system of government, uh, which, of course, is the whole purpose of Confucianism. But beginning in the end of the 14th century, 
the uh, Chosun dynasty, which lasted until the beginning of the 20th century, so from the end of the 14th to the beginning of the 20th, that is a very long-lived dynasty. They uh, promoted the active uh, Confucianization of society, not just of government, but they were trying to create the state as a model Confucian society. And there are various ways they did this through edicts that were enacted by royal government over time. There were uh, policies that were stated, emphasis on ancestral rituals and so on. But, uh, and also what they call village covenants that would uh, bind members of a uh, village to, to adhere to certain concepts of Confucian life. So that very briefly is the background. And where I see these folktales, uh, what the role these folktales had was both to introducing to the young hearer, because these will have been told principally to children, and reinforcing them to any adults who were hearing them, or indeed say, telling them. So they were a way of conveying and maintaining certain Korean precepts. Now for the fun. Green tree, tree frog. Uh, it might be easy, I don't know how easy it is to read the screen. I've asked that you could have this in front of you if it's easy to read it from, uh, the, from the text. Basically, this is one of the most popular Korean folk tales. It appears in all kinds of little books for children. It's reproduced in cartoons and so on. It's a very popular tale. And it's very didactic. There was a mother tree frog, green tree frog. And she had 10 children. And they did not listen to her. She'd tell them to do one thing, they'd do the opposite. Go to the east, they go to the west, you know, go to the mountain, they go to the river. And it was just exhausting. <laughs> and you see, everybody now is grinning, and that's exactly what happens when this is told. But there's a, there's a text here, there's a subtext. So, mother realizes now that she is um, about to die. She is so sick, she has been just drained of strength. So she thinks, I want to be buried properly which of course means someplace in an appropriate geometric location on a hillside. Very good, with good outlook. You probably know this under the Chinese term feng shui, or pungsu in Korean. She wants a tomb in a good place. How is she going to get this? Tell the kids to do the opposite thing. However, <laughs> mother, dies, and the children repent. We never listened to mother while we were alive, <laughs> she was alive. We will listen to her now. So they bury her by the river. And of course, every time it rains, the tomb is in, is in danger of sliding into the river, and they croak. So this is, a, this is a very short tale, but it is rich in all kinds of elements. Uh, first of all, there's the, the aspect of filial piety. It's telling you about the virtue of filial piety, 
but they were, they were not filial sons. Uh, it's implied that they are sons, by the way. Uh, they were not filial sons. So you have the emphasis on what is good behavior, what happens if you don't behave, because of course they have an almost eternal problem because they can't correct this now, they've done what their mother wanted, and they still cannot be good sons because it may slide off into the river. So it has the function of amusement. We all smiled as soon as the, the uh, story was begun to be told. It has the function of education, and it also has the function of enforcing conformity. Uh, or, or I should say, not education, but validation. And it also has the educational function. Why do green tree frogs croak? Well, because they're worried about mothers, too. So in fact, we get all four of them in this. So for a little story, it has a lot packed into it. And this tale is very typical of many Korean tales. It has this kind of Confucian subtext uh, embedded in it. So those are this, the structure, lives, the kind of lives the young tree frogs led, the deathbed request of their mother, and the repentance of the young green tree frogs. There we have the validation of the values, conformity to values, amusement, and education. Of course, the amusement is we know what the, the children should do, so why don't they? The, the, you have to sort of think how this might have been heard. Now, there's another tale which is somewhat like it. This is about the squirrel's gratitude. And this is shorter. But basically, there is this elderly, <coughs> childless couple who rescue a, uh, a squirrel from being mauled by a weasel. And they take it back and raise it and treat it like a child. Now, quite obviously, this squirrel must have gotten out and gotten married and come back and produced all kinds of little squirrels because eventually there's quite a lot of them. And so the, uh, the elderly couple says, why, look, why don't you uh, go and get some food? So they bethink themselves and say, yes. So they come back each day, and each one of these many squirrels brings a uh, grain of rice with them. And so they look after this elderly couple until they die. And when they do die, they give them a proper, that means Confucian, funeral, and they bury them in the proper place, in the mountains, obviously with some good geomancy located in the right place. I mean, that's the sort of implication of this little story. So it's similar to the uh, green tree frog story. And the basic structure is you have a childless couple who raises the squirrel. The squirrels support the couple in their old age. And then the squirrels bury the couple upon their death and give them an appropriate funeral cer ceremony. So what's the text here? Like the green tree frog, you have the validation of cultural values. Filial piety, kill. So to the young child, 
who's hearing this story, it's saying if squirrels can beha behave according to civilized values, then, and respect their parents, shouldn't young children do the same? And that's, of course, the story of the green tree frog story is much the same way, because here you have this little social system, which is clearly abiding by uh, Confucian values, or even if the children, the ten little tree frogs, aren't being very filial. It implies that these values are universal, whether it's frogs or squirrels. These aren't just human values, they're sort of general values. Oops, I was told not to do that. Um, so here you have two uh, key values. Clearly, the uh, elderly couple, by looking after the squirrel, are showing their in or benevolence. And the squirrels, being proper Confucian squirrels, respond uh, with hyo, with filial piety. So here you can see this little, in this little uh, social network that spans the uh, human-animal divide, they understand this. Of course, the, the implication is that uh, so should children. And of course, this is, this is amusing. Now, what the, uh, what the uh, squirrels are demonstrating is not actually hyo but chung, loyalty. But loyalty stands in, in this case, for hyo, which is our filial piety, which is a, a human value. Now look, let's look at one of the really great stories, the story of Hungbu and Nolbu. Uh, this is one of the most popular Korean uh, folk tales. It, there, are all, there are various versions of this tale. It uh, is I, uh, there's a script for it, for pansori. Pansori is a kind of dramatic troubadour presentation where they have these troubadour type of figures who go in traditional times from village to village and sing for hours on end a particular story. And this was one of them. And this uh, has a lot of uh, Confucian values impacted in it. This has appeared in... Uh, film, it is on TV drama, it appears on postage stamps. It's one of the few things that North and South Korea agree upon because both of them in the 60s and 70s produced a series of stamps showing this, uh, the various scenes in this very complex tale. Uh, this tale uh, is much longer than the other two that we've been looking at. It also is what I, has what I call a, a, a double contrastive structure. That is, it, con it uh, consists of five themes, or scenes. Uh, the first two make a point. The next, the third, and the fourth are the opposite. They make a contrast uh, with the first two. And the fifth one is found in this version, there are some versions that don't have the fifth scene, which has to do with the repentance and reconciliation of the two brothers, uh, repentance of the elder brother and the uh, reconciliation of the two brothers. But let's look at the story. 
This is a, a very popular story in Korea. In fact, there's a, there's a, f there's a, a chain of restaurants that is named after the two brothers. It's, it's, it's that popular. But what is this about? This is about two brothers. And one, you can say, is the good brother, and the other is the bad brother. The younger brother, or Humbu, uh, is the good brother. He's kind, he's diligent, uh, he respects his brother, he's hardworking, but for some reason, they don't, they, he's just unsuccessful as a farmer, and his poor family go hungry all the time. Quite a contrast to uh, brother Nobu, who was very wealthy and wouldn't share any of his wealth or help his brother. But one day, Humbu is coming back from the field and he notices that there is a swallow who has been attacked by a snake, a swallow's nest has been attacked by a uh, snake. And all but one of the little, of the swallows has been eaten and this poor little swallow has actually fallen out of the tree and broken a leg. So kind-hearted Humbu goes and binds up the wound, puts this uh, little um, bird back in its nest, looks after it. Then comes, comes the time when all good swallows have to fly south to a nice warm area and the swallow flies off. And then, on the third day of the third lunar month, that's not March the third, of course, the third, third day of the third lunar month, lo and behold, the swallows return and so does this particular swallow that Humbu has looked after and he has a little seed and he drops it in front of him and Humbu takes the seed and plants it in the ground. And what happens? It began to grow almost immediately. And it grew, and it grew, and it grew, and it produced five large gourds. Well, they thought this was a bit strange, but they thought, mm, maybe there's something there. So they opened one up. And what, what happens? The rice began to flow out of this, just all an endless amount of rice. And they it said they filled five huge uh, containers, and there was still more coming out. They thought, well, what's in the next one? Well, they open this up, and it's gold coins that come <laughs> flowing out. And they are just so happy, and they're dancing all around. Uh, and they th then open the third one. And out in a puff of smoke comes a beautiful nymph. And she looks at the other two gourds and says, Blue, come out red and blue bottles, and they do. And she says, now, go and build a nice big house for these people, which they promptly do. They have timber and they have workmen. And when it's all done, they disappear, and she goes back in a puff of smoke uh, into, the, uh, into the blue bottle. Well, Humbu and, Nobu and uh, Humbu's wife are absolutely overwhelmed. He now is a man of wealth. His family can live well. They didn't want for anything. But Brother Nolbu, the older brother, 
who wouldn't share his wealth, was greedy for more. So he goes, he was amazed. How does his brother get this big house and all of these goods? So he goes over to him and said, hey, you. And the text, <laughs> you know, it's pretty rude. You know, hey, you. How on earth did you do it? Tell me. So he told him all about how he helped the injured bird. So Noble decides, right, he's greedy, of course. So he goes off, finds a, makes a nest for some swallows. Fortunate swallow comes, and <laughs> you see what happens. And he breaks them, he knocks it out, he breaks the leg, binds it up, puts it back. And then what's going to happen? Well, the, the, all the swallows fly off and they come back and just like he's anticipating, the swallow comes back and drops this gourd on the ground. And it plants, he plants it and it grows very quickly. And what happens when they take these gourds, they open and the first one, there's a lot of imps that come out <laughs> with sticks saying, we must punish you for your greed. And they beat him mercilessly. Then they disappeared. So thinking there was something else in the next one, they opened it up, and what comes out but the debt collectors? <laughs> and they say, you, give us the money you owe, or we'll take everything. And they do take everything. And they think, maybe the third one will have something. So he goes and opens it, and a flood of dirty, smelly water, and you can guess what this is. <laughs> something from a cesspool. <laughs> floods the whole area. Well, poor Hong, uh, Noble and his wife. So he can't do anything more, so he runs over to uh, Humbu's house, and the compassionate younger brother looks after his, uh, his elder brother. Humbu repents, and then his younger brother shares equally his wealth with his formerly greedy elder brother. This is a wonderful story. <laughs> but it's full of a lot of, in, a lot of different interests. First of all, let's look at the structure of it. I, I said it's a double contrasted narrative. First thing is, the first scene tells us about the virtue of the younger brother. The second is the reward for the younger brother's virtue. The third is the evil intent of the older brother, and then his punishment. So you have reward, good, good virtue, rewarded, lack of virtue, punishment. Many versions of this story that you can hear just have the four scenes, but this particular version, uh, which was recorded, has this fifth thing, uh, situation where um, uh, Noble repents and becomes a, ch a changed character. In some of the versions, uh, poor old Noble just dies <laughs> or disappears. <laughs> so that's the kind of structure, uh, the narrative. But what is inside this? First of all, is clear validation of cultural values. The older brother should look after the younger and be a model for him. In other words, he should be expressing benevolence or in, and the elder, younger brother should be responding with chung, or loyalty. And clearly, you see, the younger brother expresses that, but the elder brother lacks that virtue. 
So the second function we can see it enforces conformity to cultural values. The other brother is punished for his greed. I mean, poor fellow with all that dirty water swelling around his house. He's really had it. Not to say anything about the debt collectors. So he's not the ideal elder brother. But the social criticism element is that the elder brother in traditional Korean society had a specific role. Uh, and this noble, the older brother in this story, had no evidence of having in, of having uh, benevolence. Now, if you were a Korean in traditional time, uh, an adult or a child, the thing that would strike you first of all about this story is the elder brother is not really like an elder brother. The ideal elder brother is supposed to take care of, is supposed to sort of teach by moral example his younger siblings. And clearly, Noble is not. He is not doing that. In fact, one of the interesting evidences of the extent to which uh, Korean society has been Confucianized was the very word to study or to learn in Korean is pronounced kongbu, which actually goes back to the uh, teachings of one of Confucius's main uh, subsequent disciples, uh, which refers to moral cultivation. So learning is moral cultivation. And that's what the, that's what the older brother is supposed to do, ideally. He's supposed to be a cultivator of moral values. Well, clearly, in this story, he's not. So what's really shocking in the story is not only that the elder brother is the one who, um, uh, who is the one who does not uh, exemplify Confucian virtue, but it is the younger brother who becomes the moral teacher to his older brother. Because in this particular tale, he repents. He knows what he's done wrong. So this is a very popular tale, and it's, uh, it's rich. It's full of uh, all kinds of uh, elements. But let's look at a final story, the fight between a centipede and a toad. Now this one is full of all kinds of adventure and creepy thrills. It's raining one day. And this rains very hard. And there's this poor widow and her daughter. And this uh, toad creeps into the house, I guess to get out of all the rain. It was that wet. It was the rainy season. And the daughter felt a bit of, uh, well, yuck. <laughs> she wasn't very, didn't want to have the toad in the house. However, she thinks differently, and she looks after him, and eventually, the toad becomes a pet. And because even though they were poor, the toad was constantly fed uh, by this uh, young girl, he became quite healthy and a pet. And they, they quite liked him. Then, uh, one day, the girl noticed that he was really getting big, like <laughs> getting towards the size of a calf. This is a pretty big toad. But she constantly, constantly fed him. They didn't dislike him. 
it become quite a good pet. Now, this village had behind it a mountain, as practically every village in Korea does, because it's a very mountainous country. Uh, and there was a shrine there dedicated to a, a centipede who had been there for a couple of thousand years. And because the centipede brought uh, the rain and uh, was, uh, brought good fortune to the village, every year a young maiden would be um, prop uh, propitiated by giving it a, one of the maidens of the village for uh, a wife, meaning she, he's going to eat her. And it came the turn of the young girl who was looking after the toad this particular year. And she said the maiden was very sad. Her future was dark. Well, yes, you can imagine. And she wondered what she was going to do. Came the day of the great ritual. Everybody troops up to the shrine. And the maiden looked down to her side, and there was the toad. He had followed her up. And she asked him, what am I going to do? He didn't answer, of course, but he clearly seemed to be thinking about what he had to do. So the villagers leave, it gets midnight, it's dark, and it is very creepy. And in comes the centipede with countless legs, and he had come to get the maiden. And she shivered and quaked and shook. And the toad saw that this centipede had a green light on his head, something creepy about this, and he begins to attack the, the toad. And so throughout the night, the toad and the centipede have this great battle. Like all good maidens, she swoons and faints. Now the next day, the villagers come to the shrine and see this strange scene of the centipede and the toad who are dead because they had drunk in each other's poison. The maiden was unconscious. They woke her up, gave her some gruel, and the toad had repaid the maiden's kindness by bravely fighting with the centipede, and it died. So the people of the village took the toad, placed it in a good spot, and gave it a funeral. The centipede was burned in the fire, and it stank for three months, it says. Now this is interesting. As a centipede, which the villagers had been afraid of for a long time since he was dead, they gave up the custom of, of sacrificing uh, young maidens or of having any rituals at the shrine. End of story. Now what's in this story? First of all, the structure is you have this development of this bond between the maiden and this toad. Then we have the proposed sacrifice of the maiden to the beast for the benefit of the whole community. That's the point about why the sacrifice was, and nobody felt you could change this custom because it was for the benefit of everyone. Uh, poor maiden. Then the third scene is the battle between the two beasts, the great centipede and the toad, and finally the abolition of the practice of human sacrifice. Now, what does this tell us? First of all, it's about, again, the validation of cultural values. Every one of these tales 
has this element in it. First of all, loyalty. We can start here maybe with in, with benevolence. It's a sign of civilized behavior to be kind to animals. And they respond with true, with loyalty. A toad could understand the civilized value of loyalty to a superior and to be grateful for kindness. How much more should a young children be able to understand this value? And this is one of the things that comes through over and over again of all the tales that we've looked at. The green tree frog, the squirrels, um, Humbu and Nolbu with the bird, uh, and here with the toad. So what this is saying is that these values of benevolence, loyalty, and loyalty stands in for filial piety, remember, these are universal. It's typical of the human world and the animal world as well. So uh, these are universal values. Conformity to cultural values. It's saying to the hearer, the child, if a uh, if society gives recognition to an animal who understood that loyalty is a core value, you too will be rewarded. Now, how is he rewarded? Well, unfortunately, the toad is only rewarded posthumously. But that's the point. He was like a human, so he gets a human burial. It says they, they found a good place for him. Again, lots of good pungsu, feng shui. And he's given a proper mounded tomb. So they recognized his adherence to cultural values. So, you know, if, an, if this can happen to a toad and be rewarded, you will be rewarded too. And there's amusement, of course. There's lots of creepy thrills in this, <laughs> this tale. And there's social criticism. Because what, one of the things that this is saying is civilized people don't sacrifice humans. Interesting. And finally, education. Civilized, we're civilized people, and we don't do those things. And the, what this implies is you had a kind of pre-Confucian society, yet people were adhering to certain Confucian uh, values. And because the toad exemplified these values, it led to the abolition of uncivilized practices and the creation of a, quote, civilized, i.e. Confucian society. Uh, so this, again, is of, it's not just fun, it's not just full of lots of interest and amusement. There's a strong educational uh, element here as well. So what do we see in these tales? Basically that these folk tales were a way of conveying uh, three key values. That is of benevolence, filial piety, and loyalty. These are the sort of core values that uh, Confucius, Confucianism taught about human relationships, what makes a good society, because that's basically what East Asian philosophy is about. Good governance, good society, uh, good relationships. And so this is the way, certainly, that young children would have learned these values. And by the very telling of them, adults would likewise uh, have had their views reinforced. So. This has not been a lecture on zoology and the life of frogs, but I hope it's given you some insight into how folk tales can, are not just fun, they're not just amusing, although we've all had a good laugh, 
at several points during the, the hour, but they're actually didactic, they're teaching something, they're affirming certain cultu cultural values and also showing you what happens if you don't <laughs> adhere to them. Uh, and I'll, I'll end here. Thank you very much. For all information, please go to gresham.ac.uk.